This week, finding out what makes corals tick to help them survive. Coral reefs are a bit like the canary in the mine. They're a very, very sensitive animal and any changes in the environment actually uh, has, has a strong effect on them. And Beatrix Potter, frustrated scientist and exacting illustrator of wildlife. She was really drawing to find a way to earn a living. This is a pre-feminist, if you will, who's looking for an avenue to be something other than bored. Plus, why the why? Two new analyses of the function of that little man-maker, the Y chromosome. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 24th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. In most mammals, the Y chromosome is what leads a developing organism down the road to manhood. But this potent little man-maker has had a troubled past. Early on in its evolutionary history, it was part of a regular pair of chromosomes. But due to some random chopping and changing of the genetic code, it stopped being able to pair up properly to recombine with its partner, the X. Unable to properly exchange genes, the Y chromosome shriveled to a fraction of its former self. Now only 3% of its original genes remain. Two separate teams now publish results offering the most detailed accounts of the Y's evolution. Jeff Marsh, owner of a shriveled Y, has more. The Y chromosome has seriously shriveled since it was the identical partner of the X. But of the genes that did survive, it's now clear that this genetic material has remained remarkably stable for the last 25 million years. These two papers to come out of Nature this week offer up new perspectives about the Y chromosome's origins and its role in mammals today. By comparing Y chromosomes from all the major lineages of mammals, that is the placentals like us, to the Australian marsupials, to those strange egg-laying mammals, the so-called monotremes, We now see that this transition from a non-sex chromosome to the Y chromosomes of all mammals today may not be such a simple story. Whilst the Y chromosome obviously does still play an important role in making males, certain genes that have stuck around seem to perform functions unrelated to sex in all tissues throughout a male's life. I spoke with authors from both papers, Daniel Bellot at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the US and Henrik Caseman from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. To kick things off, I asked Daniel why the Y chromosome has been so hard to study compared to the other chromosomes. The Y chromosome has a lot of large, highly identical duplications. Some of them are like palindromes. So like madam I madam is a palindrome, right? But these are palindromes and DNA bases instead of letters. When you sequence a genome, you're trying to put together tiny fragments and looking at the overlaps. If you have something that's that identical, you actually don't know which arm of the palindrome it comes from. That means you need to use larger fragments, and the trend in genome sequencing is to be using smaller and smaller fragments. That's actually made Ys harder to assemble in the rest of the genome. Henrik Caseman and his group worked around these tricky problems of sequencing the Y using RNA as well as DNA. This allowed them to take a faster survey of a wider group of mammals in order to settle some questions about the Y chromosome's origins. It was thought for a long time that the human Y chromosome stems yeah, from an ancestral set of autosomes and that the sex chromosome origination event, which led to the differentiation of the Y chromosome, occurred in the ancestor common to all mammals. Now, we really refine this picture substantially in the sense that we find two independent origins of sex chromosomes, including the respective Y chromosomes, in the ancestor of marsupials and placental mammals on the one hand, and the monotremes on the other hand. And we find that actually these two 
sex chromosome systems emerged independently, almost in parallel. So this is quite nice. And it basically means that there was no turnover of, let's say, the, an ancestral monotreme-like uh, sex chromosome system into the ones we find in humans today. And it also interestingly raises the question of what was the sex chromosome system and the ancestor of all mammals. No one disputes that the Y chromosome has lost most of its genes since its origination and now looks very different to its old partner, the X chromosome. But what both these papers seem to be saying is that the small percent that managed to cling on and escape this gauntlet of decay now seem to have been stable for a very long time. So back to Daniel. Apart from those involved in sex determination, what are these surviving genes responsible for? They look like they're regulating things like transcription, you know, making new RNAs and translation, turning those RNAs into protein across many cell types and tissues in the body. So they're ubiquitous, they're in every stage of life and every cell, and because they have such a sort of important regulatory role, all of these XY gene pairs seem to be very dosage sensitive. So for all those genes that were lost on the Y chromosome, the X chromosome has evolved dosage compensation to turn off the second copy. But there are some genes that need two working copies, and it's these dosage-sensitive genes that the males can't afford to lose from the Y. It looks like actually having a second sex chromosome, whether it's an X or a Y, is actually essential for viability. And we think what the Y is doing is actually holding on to those last few genes that ensure male viability, so that the Y is really sort of streamlined, that it's a a minimal second sex chromosome. And as always, when two papers come out at the same time, it's reassuring to hear that they came to the same conclusions. Yes, so we agree with these results, and we actually support them in great detail because we see that this preferential preservation of these dosage-sensitive regulatory genes occurred three times independently in the three sex chromosome systems that that we could study with our data. So it seems that both these papers have changed our opinions about the role of the Y chromosome. Finally, here's Henrik again. Previously, people thought that the Y chromosome was primarily important for functions that are specific to males, so in male-specific tissues, basically the testes. Now it's clear that these genes are not specific to males in the sense that that they have male-specific functions, just important for functions throughout the body. So it's instead of, as in females, um, where they have two X copies of these genes, males just have an X on the, and, a, and a Y, but the Y then doesn't probably substantially different function from the X copy. That was Henrik Caseman and before him Daniel Bellot talking to Jeff Marsh. Coming up, the private lives of corals and how snooping on them could help protect them from climate change. But before that, here's Noah Baker with the research highlights. Male insects inside Brazilian caves had better watch out. Females with penises are on the prowl. Scientists in Japan came across the role reversal amongst four species of tiny winged insects called Neotrogla, some of which have sex for nearly three days. The females use a large penis-like organ to penetrate the male. The structure receives the male sperm, which the female uses both for reproduction and nutrition. What's more, their penis is covered in spines to help hold them inside the male. The team thinks competition between females for mates might have caused this elaborate sexual structure to evolve. Find out more about who wears the trousers in that relationship in current biology. A species of plankton thought to have gone extinct more than a million years ago has been found alive and well in the Pacific Ocean. 
it's a member of a group called the dinoflagellates, single-celled organisms that like warm water. Now, a Belgium-based team have discovered live cysts of the plankton species called Dapsilidinium pastielsii in the seafloor from Japan to the Philippines and Indonesia. The region is known as the Indo-Pacific Warm Pool and it's a haven for biodiversity. Refuge areas like this will be important for maintaining biodiversity in a changing climate, say the team. Read more in the journal Geology. It'll be time for the news chat before you know it. But first, for many perhaps, a trip down memory lane as Noah Baker speaks with Linda Lear, a historian and biographer based in Washington, D.C., to delve into the world of Beatrix Potter. Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits and their names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail and Peter. They lived with their mother in a sandbank underneath the root of a very big fir tree. The Tale of Peter Rabbit It's a story many grew up with, written and lovingly illustrated by Beatrix Potter. Her characters, Mrs Tiggywinkle the Hedgehog or Jemima Puddleduck, are loved around the world, but Beatrix Potter's interests extended beyond the whimsical world of children's stories and into the intimate workings of the natural world. Here's historian Linda Lear. Beatrix Potter was a woman who had an incredible imagination, and she believed that you couldn't know a thing without drawing it, that drawing a tree made you know that tree and how it was structured, or drawing a fungi, painting its skills and looking at its separate parts really helped in a way to know it in, in a different way than just seeing it under the microscope. I mean, she, I mean, she wasn't just drawing pretty little flowers. She, she was fascinated by caterpillars, and one of her first copybooks is full of descriptions of caterpillars and then little scientific notes that go with her drawings about what their habits were and what they ate. So would it be fair to say that she was somewhat of a scientist in in some regards? Absolutely. Beatrix could have been any sort of a professional scientist if she had not been a female. She was interested in geology. She was interested in anthropology. She was interested in etymology. You know, she drew these wonderful spiders and bugs and creatures. There's nothing really that she missed. You mentioned there, had she not been a woman, do you think that the the fact that she was a woman really held her back in science, and is that why she ended up going in the route that she went? There weren't very many women in science in in any way. And, you know, a proper upper class or upper middle class, certainly, uh, daughter did not aspire to be a professional in, in, in any field. There were women that worked at Kew as garden helpers, essentially, encumbered by great skirts and pantaloons, You can't imagine them actually getting on their hands and knees and digging very much. But women were not to be doing that kind of thing, and they were certainly not upper-class women. Of the animals in the natural world, people will probably associate Beatrix Potter with rabbits and and hedgehogs and ducks and and the sort of the cutesy animals of the woodland. But actually, the organisms she really took a, a fancy to were a bit more unexpected. They were fungi. There was nothing too small to catch her eye, and I think that's how she first got into mycology, into the study of fungi, because she saw them first as these wonderful dancing colors in the fields that would come secretly out and then disappear the next day. But then she met a postman up in Perthshire who was one-handed, who couldn't draw uh, and paint fungi as well as she could. And so they made this deal, really, that if he could supply her with fresh samples, 
she would make paintings of them and send him a copy. I think that's how she began to want to know the scientific parts of the fungi, how they worked, and then how did they reproduce? How did they come again season after season? At the time, her drawings of fungi and things weren't really recognized by the scientific community. But but in in hindsight, looking back, actually some of her drawings are are really quite meaningful. Are, Are any of them still used today? Absolutely. About 60 of them were published in the late 60s, uh, 69, I think, and that was something she'd always wanted. She, she was really drawing to find a way to earn a living. This is a pre-feminist, if you will, who's looking for an avenue to be something other than bored. If she could have made a living by drawing fungi, she would have been very happy. But instead, you know, she began drawing animals. But later on, as people saw what she had given to the Armit Library when she gave them all her fungi and moss drawings, uh, they realized what kind of eye she had and what she drew, both inadvertently and quite specifically. Do you think that the observations she made of the things around her influenced the characters that people know so well, Mrs. Tiggywinkle and, and Peter Rabbit? Oh, yes. And she loved hedgehogs and, and made many drawings and studies of, of their reactions and their behavior her, Mrs. Tiki Winkle, had a temper and didn't like to be propped up. And she observed how foxes behaved and how badgers behaved. And it's all it's all taken from nature and then put into her fabulous imagination. Now, my dears, said old Mrs. Rabbit one morning, you may go into the fields or down the lane, but don't go into Mr. McGregor's garden. Your father had an accident there. He was put in a pie by Mrs. McGregor. Now run along and don't get into mischief. I am going out. Leah's essay on Potter's wonderful illustrations is in the magazine this week, nature.com slash nature. Plenty of examples elsewhere online too. Try searching for the Armit Museum, A-R-M-I-T-T, and the Victoria and Albert Museum. Climate change is turning up the temperature in the oceans as well as on land, and many marine species will be threatened as a result. A feature in Nature this week explores the idea of growing heat-resistant corals in nurseries and then planting them out into areas of the sea where warming waters are damaging coral reefs. But researchers also want to know how natural coral reproduction might be affected by climate change. Nature's Marion Turner visited a London aquarium to find out more. The Horniman Museum and Gardens in South London is a treasure trove of interesting things, established by tea trader Frederick John Horniman in the 19th century. We just walked past a giant, kind of overstuffed walrus, and there are cabinets full of old musical instruments. But they also have several rooms of aquaria, which scientists are using to study corals. I'm here with the aquarium curator, Jamie Craggs, to hear about their project. Jamie, we're, we're standing in front of four large tanks here that are showing what it looks like under the sea. And there are corals everywhere. Can you tell me what exactly are corals and why are you studying them? So corals are what are called colonial organisms, colonial animals. They are a bit like sea anemones. They're part of the sea anemone family. And the reason why we're studying them is coral reefs are a bit like the canary in the mine. They're a very, very sensitive animal and any changes in the environment, things like climate change, actually uh, has, has a strong effect on them. What particular aspect of coral biology are you guys studying? 
So, you know, we run a, an aquarium, so we have an innate understanding of how to uh, keep corals not just um, healthy, but also to get them to thrive and to spawn. So it's spawning is the thing that we're really interested in. Eggs and sperm from the hard corals, the broadcast spawners. So they're the spawners that have this sort of mass spawning event once a year out in the, uh, the reef. So what we're doing with our research system is we replicate those environmental conditions that are found on a real reef, but in our closed laboratory system here. So is it hard to get corals to spawn in an aquarium? There, there have been a number of spawning events from hard corals in, in captivity around the world, but they've always been incidental events. No one's ever gone out and looked at all those environmental parameters, replicated them in, in a closed system to induce spawning in a very predictable way and that's that's what we're focusing on let's take a look at this tank over here how are you replicating the conditions of a fiji reef so we we've collected data from a number of sources um, we use a sea surface temperature buoy uh, which has come from about 50 miles away from where these corals have come from and all of that data has been put into the microprocessor and that controls our heaters and chillers to replicate that seasonal change and then we use a website to give us our photo period and the lunar cycle uh, real time that's going on in Fiji. And this tube here replicates the lunar cycle and we've, we've been very particular. We're using the same Kelvin temperature of the LED that replicates the same Kelvin temperature of the moon. So we've literally got the moon in a tube over here and the sun up here above this tank corresponding to exactly what would be happening in Fiji at the moment. Absolutely. So what we've tried to do is identify all the possible parameters that would induce spawning and cover all our bases. We think light is everything. And they know that within a few minutes on a set day, that, that species will spawn. Have you actually managed to make it happen? So we started this project about, um, about 18 months ago and we had two spawnings last year and it's you know, an unbelievable sight to see corals spawning in captivity in a very controlled way. We knew exactly when it was going to go on the night that it was going to go, so we, we set up some really nice high-definition video cameras and got some fantastic footage of, of the spawning events. Now you've got it down pat how to know when they're going to spawn, what's next? Well, the first, the first year was very much saying our methodology will work, and it, and it has. So now we're looking at unpicking the reasons behind why it's worked. So we're running something called a heterotrophic feeding experiment this year, which will pull apart the feeding regime to see which components are actually the most important for the energetics for the coral. We're then doing some genetics work this year as well. We started sampling last month and we'll be sampling every month throughout the year to try and understand which genes are upregulating and downregulating and potentially controlling the coral and inducing them to spawn or at least you're triggering them to produce the eggs and sperm to begin with. And then we'll cross-reference that with the environmental data. And do you think that with your knowledge now of how you can get corals to spawn in captivity, you could potentially breed corals in an aquarium to then reseed those damaged reefs out in nature? A lot of the techniques that we're learning could absolutely be used for reef restoration work, definitely. During a spawning event, it produces a huge, huge amount of material. And out in the wild, such a small percentage of the spawn that's released actually settles to become a coral. 
uh, through predation and things. The beauty of doing it in a closed system is you can get rid of a, that bottleneck of survivability. So you can potentially produce a huge number of corals, either for reef restoration or for potentially supplying the aquarium industry. Jamie Craggs talking to Marion. To see Jamie's corals spawning, go to horniman.ac.uk or follow the link from the Nature Podcast page. Finally this week, how do you stop a flu outbreak in its tracks? Well, the governments of many countries have opted for stockpiling antiviral drugs. Two of the most common are Tamiflu and Relenza. Last week, a report by an influential group of scientists found fault with the stockpiling approach. But this week, Nature reports that many flu researchers are unhappy with the way the analysis was done. News editor David Ray has bought the latest. David, the initial report first, it generated a lot of media coverage last week. What were its conclusions? Well, the conclusions were that uh, Tamiflu and another drug that the, uh, the Cochrane Group studied called Lenza, which are both a similar class of, of drug, uh, were of limited use. And I think one of the, the quotes that came out of a press conference that was given, or press release that was given, was that the, the findings of the, of the report challenged the historical assumption that new aminidase inhibitors are effective in combating influenza. And these are the, the class of drugs that we're talking about. So essentially that the effectiveness has perhaps been overplayed. This is what they're saying over the last 10 years. And this brings into question, obviously, the, the need to stockpile these drugs, which the government's, uh, UK government included, has spent many millions of pounds doing. So to recap, Tamiflu was stockpiled in the UK back in 2005? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, certainly the mid-2000s, yeah, following the, the avian flu in, uh, in 2003. And who is contesting this latest report? Well, this is, a lot of um, researchers in the flu community are the one who are sort of saying that they're just sort of not contesting the findings, but just sort of subjecting them to a bit of harsh, uh, you know, Criticism, I, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. So we've um, sampled sort of some of the, the big names out there in the flu community and asked them exactly what they thought in the, the wake of the, the quite powerful media headlines that followed uh, the, the, the publication of this study. And uh, they've actually sort of not particularly comfortable with, with some of the way it was, it was reported and also some of the, the, the findings within the report itself. What are their sorts of criticisms? Well, the key ones are that Cochrane Valley distinctly looks only at certain types of, uh, of analysis. So it only looks at what are called randomised uh, clinical trials. And they say that this means that they don't haven't looked at a lot of observational studies, which uh, obviously are sort of key. And these are obviously more important when you look at actual pandemics themselves, which you can't do randomised clinical trials on because you don't know when a pandemic is going to happen and obviously people are already getting the disease and this kind of thing. So there's a big sort of what they say is a big dearth of analysis on these observational studies, which have shown that Tamiflu and Lorenza can actually be quite effective in, in the event of, of a pandemic. They're also slightly concerned that the, um, the media storm is undermining public confidence in these medicines, because obviously they are the sort of the frontline treatment in the use of, of uh, in, in the event of a pandemic. Um, and there's a couple of sort of slightly finer points that they're concerned about as well, which we sort of go into detail in the story. And you mentioned there the public confidence issue. What sorts of effects is this media surrounding this report going to have? Yeah, well, I think one of the big sort of uh, criticisms that our flu researchers we spoke to had was that it, there was a sort of, um, the media had slightly misinterpreted perhaps what uh, the Cochrane had been saying and they sort of hyped it up with all this use of, you know, useless drugs, waste of money, blah, blah, that the BBC and, and sort of Daily Mail, for example, used. So th what the research they're trying to do is put that a little bit more into context and say that actually Tamiflu does have a place in the event of a pandemic. It's pretty much the best we've got and, uh, and it should be, uh, still be used at, at the front line of, uh, 
of, of treatment in the event of a pandemic. And therefore, what they're trying to say is let's not dampen down public confidence in these drugs, which are you know not particularly widely dis- uh, prescribed. They're also used in seasonal flu, of course. But in the, if a pandemic ever hit, they're pretty much all we've got. And I think they don't want to lower public confidence, people thinking that you know the only drug we've got is useless. So these researchers have put forward their criticisms. What happens now? Well, good question. I mean, Cochrane obviously are unlikely to change uh, their review. It was it was done very well, and I think a lot of our researchers acknowledge that, that the stuff that they did look at, they went into in great depth and, and came up with some interesting conclusions. But I think what our researchers would like to see is, is Cochrane sort of uh, trying to you know, address the balance a little bit here and say that, st- and sort of stamp out some of the hype about uh, the fact that these drugs are ineffective or whatever the newspaper's headlines say. And I would point out that Cochrane themselves have said that they do not feel that uh, any of their uh, coverage or the, the news coverage was hyped or misinterpreted or misleading for that matter. David, thank you for that. Remember, Nature's coverage of Tamiflu is at nature.com slash news. That's all from us this week. Join us next time as we bring to life some explosive volcanic eruptions from history. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 